32, Exodus chapter 32. It's on page 72, if you'd like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one in front of you in that pew, grab it, turn to page 72, otherwise Psalm 32. I'm going to begin verse, at verse 1 and read down through verse 10. As we uh, make our way through the passage, we'll, we'll read some other segments of it as well, but this will get us oriented to our passage. This is God's word for us this morning, and here's what God says. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he fashioned the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people uh, sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. You may be seated. Father, there's no word like your word. We're thankful that we have your word. We want even now our time in your word to be an aspect of our worship this morning, even as we've sang glorious songs about you and to you, even as our hearts have leaped over the nature of these songs. Father, may our hearts leap that we have your word in front of us. Help us to understand. Show us wonderful things about yourself from your word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Two things I want us to think about briefly this morning from Exodus chapter 32. First of all, we'll make note of the actions of defiance against the Redeemer. And then we'll see something of the actions of the Redeemer against the defiance. We'll start there in verses 1 through 10, as we've already read Exodus 32 in a profound way parallels Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, that's an important passage that notes the fall of humanity, that God placed Adam and Eve in a good garden, gave them everything they needed, and even in terms of giving them graciously instructions on how to live well in that garden. And Adam and Eve fell. Now, I say fall, that's theologically what we call it, and yet that's a misnomer because a fall could mean an accidental mishap. It was far from an accidental mishap. It was a heinous rebellion. It was an act of defiance. It was an acute repudiation of God. And we see something of that same sort of stunt that Adam and Eve pulled off in the garden that now these sons and daughters of Adam, as they are gathering at the bottom of Mount Sinai, they are instigating their own rendition, their own version of rebellion and defiance and repudiation. In other words, what all of humanity had done in Adam, Israel is front and center showing that, uh, well, have you ever thought sometimes, well, if it was me there instead of Adam, uh, I would have done differently. Oh, you're so silly. God had just graciously graciously rescued the people of Israel, uh, delivered them safely, provided for their every need, surrounded them with protection, and uh, we see how quickly they have uh, uh, repudiated uh, the God who had done this for them, how quickly they have rebelled and are living now in defiance against the God who has done these things. In terms of the first 10 verses that we've just read, what I find intriguing is the first six verses just kind of objectively record what is happening. Remember, Moses, for the last 40 days, has been up at the top of Mount Sinai. He had gone up earlier, received the 10 words, and and there in Exodus 20, as he delivers those words to Israel, they're like, got it, all that you commanded will do. And while he's up there receiving the, uh, the instructions that we've already peeked into, instructions concerning the, the building of the tabernacle, instructions concerning the priestly garments, the things that we've looked at briefly of the last couple of Sundays, while he's up there getting all this information, they are completely out of touch with reality. They claim to not know where Moses is at. 
They, they claim to not know what, what happened to him. There's the record of that, and in, and in their anxiousness, in their fearfulness, they need a God who's going to go before them. And they grab Aaron, and, and, and literally, that, it doesn't really fully come out, but, but the, the imagery is, is that they somewhat gruffly and, and aggressively grab Aaron. Up! Make us a God who will go before us! But we not only have that in the first six verses, the record of their, might we say, insurrection. But in verses 7 through 10, we see the Lord's take on their defiance. The Lord sees this for what it really is. And however the Lord sees something, there's always a right way to see something. This is a defiant repudiation of the Lord. Now, to set that up, let me just read a couple of verses that we've dealt with previously from Exodus chapter 20, when God is first giving the 10 words. Verses 1 and 2, for instance, of Exodus 20, and the And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. And he embeds that with this, uh, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God, and I am the God who has brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he goes on to say in verse 3 through verse 6 of Exodus 20, You shall make no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. I didn't realize that we're, we're reading in chapter 32 of an expression of hatred toward the Lord, but showing steadfast love, verse 6, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What do they do? They, they, they make this golden calf, uh, and uh, there in verse 4, um, it, it's said of this completed idol, this golden calf, these are your gods. I would suggest to you that oftentimes the word gods is used in a plural sense, even though it's not referring to more than one. It's just a plural of majesty, if you would. So I, I think there's only one golden calf that they're bowing down and worshiping to. So I think he's referring to th- this, this is your God. This is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord, God didn't bring them out of the land of Egypt, apparently. 
This thing that they just fashioned out of gold is beats me, has now allegedly brought them out of the land of Egypt. Even the Lord there in verse 8, when, when we get the, a bit of his take on this, they have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I can't think of a bigger dagger that we would poke into God's heart. Notice what he says about this defiance and this repudiation. Nothing outside of them brought this on. In verse 7, the Lord says, Go down for your people whom, 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 for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Whether it's in ancient Israel or whether it's in fine-looking, sophisticated, well-dressed people like us, uh, the source of idolatry is never outside of us. The same sort of gunk that prompted their hearts and, 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 and tilted them toward idolatry is the same sort of gunk that percolates in our hearts. Idolatry is always an internal, interior flaw. It says in verse 8, this is, the, again, the other, an, another aspect of how the Lord sees this. They have corrupted themselves. They did this to themselves. Uh, verse 8, they have turned aside quickly. I've always speculated how long it took Adam and Eve to rebel against God in the garden, and the Scripture doesn't tell us how long it took, but I would suggest to you it didn't take very long. Well, here we are told that their rebellion against the Lord wasn't a long, drawn-out thing. They have turned aside quickly. They have, and in turning aside, they've turned aside, it says in verse 8, from, um, from, um, uh, from, um, the, from the, the way that I commanded them, so from my laws, my commands, and uh, have uh, made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. So they've turned aside quickly from the commands of God, and they've turned aside quickly from the worship of God. There's another component there in verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. By the way, is, did you, do you notice the, the descriptors here? Back in verse um, 7, go down to your people who you delivered out of the land of Egypt. There's a distancing there. And now in verse 9, uh, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. It's almost like when, when, when we were little kids and we got in trouble with mom or dad, and mom or dad would, would um, use that disavowal. Uh, you, know, you know, I could hear my mom saying to my dad, do you want to hear what your son did? 
That was hypothetical. I don't think that ever was said in my home, by the way. <laughs> well, what does he say about them? I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Not only is, is their idolatry an interior flaw, not only does it result in them turning aside from the law of God and from the worship of God, but th- this this is a settled state that is not going to be easily remedied or rooted out. And, and uh, we, can, we could pick up here and continue reading through the Old Testament, and I think we'll be marveled at how often stiff-necked will be a common trait that characterizes Israel. As Stephen, in the book of Acts, is preaching on this event, he says in Acts 7, verse 39, in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They've been delivered from Egyptian captivity. They've been delivered from the house of slavery. And now they're relishing uh, and desiring to want to go back to that existence. And they do so by the formation of an idol, a false god. Have you ever wondered why, 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 how did they come up with a golden calf? I mean, it's kind of odd. Well, what we can learn from the study of Israel and Egypt in that day and age is that Israel was really big into the idol worship of bulls and cows. Do you see where they got the ideal? They, they, they learned it from, from Egypt. Now, don't, don't, don't complicate things by pointing out that, uh, well, how did those bulls and cows help them when the Lord God showed up and uh, flattened Pharaoh? He, that bull wasn't very effective, was it? And, and yet they now need a God who will go before them. And so let's get a loser, like a golden calf. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. But do you, do, you see, do you see what sin does to us? Sin does not, does not allow us to think right. Sin is a condition that affects even our brain, even our perspective of reality. We may think we're lucid and we understand what's right and we understand what's good and we understand what's true and we understand what's lovely and, and uh, we like to think that we're sitting up on our own two feet and, and we have within ourselves a, a, a perfectly resourced mechanism uh, to, to um, figure out what's right. And, and we don't. Sin has left us in a state that we are bound in our foolishness. The Lord does hear his people when he cries, when, when his people cry out to him. But here's, here's the problem with the Lord. Now, I, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. There is no problem with the Lord. There, but here is the problem that we perceptively have with the Lord. There ain't no control in him. Do you understand why the, the notion of an idol seems like a good idea to us in our foolish state? 
Just think, if I get to take these hands, and if I get to take some tools, and if I get to make something that I declare my God, I get to tell that God what to do. I get to control that God. Do you understand why that is so attractive to us? We, we don't mind worshiping. In fact, I think it's built into our DNA. There's not a day that goes by that you're not passionately, and you and I are not passionately living in the worship of someone or something. We are incessant worshipers. But because of our fallen condition that didn't wipe out our desire to worship, it's just totally confused and redirected uh, how to have any sort of common sense as to who we should worship. It's whenever it makes sense that we could craft something with our hands and then think that will be a big enough, strong enough God to go before us, we are only revealing how foolish and brain damaged we are. And yet it's so attractive to us because if these hands can make a God, then these lips can order that God to do what I deem right. Because these eyes, things that sees what is right and good and true and, and is the accurate estimation of reality. Oh, this is an interior, internal flaw. We're not opposed to worship. We just don't want to worship a God who thinks he's in control of everything. We don't want a God who, who, who has it already scoped out the way that we are to live and how we are to worship. We want to be in defiance of the one true God. Now let's go on quickly. Second point is the action of the Redeemer. So now we get a little insight as to now we've saw already what God thinks about Israel's actions, and now we get to see something of the Lord's response uh, in light of Israel's reactions. And uh, that starts us off with an incredible offer proffered, proffered to Moses in verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone. Get out of my way. Quit talking to me. Move aside. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Wow. Can you just imagine how much better the world would be if it was just me and Jesus? I mean, it's me and Jesus and you guys that really complicates things and messes things up. But a world of me and Jesus, that's a beautiful place. I know we're not supposed to talk like that because we're in church. What would you do with that offer? What would you and I do if... if if, if we were Moses, 
This is a, this is a huge test. This is, this is an important lesson. And throughout this whole, none of this has caught the Lord by surprise. Even the fall in the garden did not catch the Lord by surprise. But this is not a, this is not a big surprise to the Lord. The, 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 the Lord is not confused over what to do. The Lord's plans are already in place. And the first aspect of the Lord's plans that he's already got in place is he wants to provoke a man to learn the work of intercession. You remember the whole nation of Israel, what were they supposed to be? They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a people who functioned priestly, who represented God before the world and who represented the world before God, that they would be the mediators and the intercessors so that all the world would know that the Lord is God. And and yet Israel is somewhat clueless as to what that looks like. And so they're, they're being given a, a gracious, powerful example of, now, this is what an intercessor looks like. Because when people would otherwise need to be obliterated and executed, um, I, 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 I'm going to bring somebody in front of you guys who will plead your case. Well, in part, He's showing them that. He's teaching them that because that's what they were supposed to do before all the other nations. You and I who name the name of Jesus, we look around and we see how fruit loopy and how goofy the world has gotten and we just want to walk away from it all. We just want to go hide in a corner somewhere. And, but here's the rub. While we are to be separate from the world, we are not separated from the world. We are sent back into the world to be intercessors, to be mediators, to represent the Lord before this world and to represent this world before the Lord. We get frustrated and fed up with the sinfulness of honorary humanity, and we just want to walk away from it all. We just wish that the Lord would drop a napalm bomb and start over just me and Jesus. That's not the Lord's will. The Lord wants you and I to engage this world as intercessors, as mediators. We are to be those who represent Jesus to this world and who display Jesus to this world. We're to be different, yes, but not different so that we would run and hide, but different so that we would move toward and display what a beautiful, true, good God that we have. And when the Lord says to Moses, get out of my way, step aside, I'm going to kill them all. My anger is burning. I would suggest that was a profoundly strategic way to draw Moses into the role as intercessor. Do you, do you, Do you revel 
in the notion that one day the king of kings is going to come on a mighty horse and he is going to destroy the wicked and the evil. There is a degree in which we say, yes, justice will be done at that moment, and our hearts yearn for that. But there must be a sense in which when we think about that, there's a sobering reality of, so what am I supposed to be doing in the meantime? Chanting, kill them, Lord, kill them. Kill them, Lord, kill them. They're wicked. They're vile. Kill them, Lord. Me and you, Jesus, it's all we need. But Moses shows us the way the Lord would have it. The Lord's plan all along in this episode is to spare Israel. To spare Israel by showing them a bit more about who he is. A bit more that'll come out in the chapters to, to, even, to even follow. And, and, and yet one of the things that the Lord is showing them about the nature and character of the kind of God he is, is that um, they become his people and they maintain uh, a relationship as his people, not on the basis of their own merit, not on the basis of their own righteousness, but first of all, on the basis of someone who will intercede for them in their place. In this case, it's Moses. The Lord draws Moses into praying for these people. And as long, because I, I, here's, here's my take on what he says, get out of my way and I'll kill him. So Moses thinking, I'm not getting out of his way. I'm going to keep talking to him. Do you you see the profound implication of that as a work of intercession? Think of of that wicked person that you've labeled wicked and uh, don't really care for because they're wicked. Are you willing to stand in the Lord's way to plead for them? For, for you don't, that they don't know what you know, and that is, they, if, if, if God unleashes his just wrath on them, that is it for them? They're so blind in their wicked state that they don't realize that, but you get that. Your eyes have been opened. You know that wrath has been diverted from you because of the shed blood of Jesus, and you don't want them to face that sort of wrath. And so you, you stand in God's way as an intercessor, pleading on their behalf, even though they don't got enough sense to know that that's what somebody ought to be doing for them. Look at verses 11 through 14. We get, the, get some of the details fleshed out uh, of this um, of, what Moses is saying as an intercessor. Get out of my way. I'm not backing down, in other words. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, Oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against... Who says next? Your people. Why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? 
with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, verse 12 is important here, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Lord, if you kill them, they're going to impugn your reputation. They're going to run around and with some modicum of justification say, this God, he's big and strong and mighty, but he's evil. He ain't good. Now, I would just note that how Moses is pleading for them is so insightful. He's not saying, now, Lord, you know, idolatry, not that big of a deal. I mean, Lord, I mean, cut us all a big break here. I mean, these are good people. And, uh, you know, they just happen to be a little anxious and fearful at the moment. They just, they need somebody to hold their hand. And, the, and, uh, and so, they, they, Lord, just back off. You're just a little bit uh, too uptight about things. Your holiness is getting the best of you here. You know, no, he's, he's not pleading the case for Israel based upon the innate goodness and merit and righteousness of Israel. Ain't none of that. He is pleading before the Lord by appealing to the Lord, by first of all appealing to the, to the, to the, to the notoriety, the reputation of the Lord. I, I, it's tongue-in-cheek, but I almost say that Mo- Moses is, is almost thinking, gotcha! <laughs> Back in Exodus chapter 9, we are reminded of why God delivered Uh, Israel out of Egyptian slavery in the first place. He says in 9.16, but for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed through all the earth. God is rescuing Israel out of Egyptian slavery so that all the world would know that he's not only a great and powerful God, but he's a good God. Moses saying, you know, God, if if you take them out now, people ain't going to be able to make sense of what you said earlier about why you're doing this in the first place. Second thing he does, picking back up verse um, uh, 13 of chapter 32, remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, that is Jacob, your, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven in all this land that I have promised and I will give it to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So Lord, uh, I'm pleading Israel's case by first of all appealing to your own glorious reputation. Lord, you are good. Let that be what is known about you. Secondly, Lord, I am appealing Israel's case because, Lord, you've made promises. You are not a liar. You are faithful to your promises. You have put yourself on record through our patriarchs, our fathers, that you will get us to a new land. And Lord, if you wipe them out now, then that is going to set aside the faithfulness of your promises. So Lord, don't kill them. 
don't kill them because you know they're basically good people. They just happen to have a little mishap here. But Lord, don't kill them because you're gloriously good and you're gloriously faithful. You understand that's, that's really the, the only thing that you and I have going for us is that God is gloriously good and that God is gloriously faithful. For lack of time, I, I can't read 15 through 29 for us, but Moses does come down and he sees the things for himself. Um, and uh, in verse 19, his anger burns. It's the same language used uh, of the Lord earlier. Um, he breaks the tablets that the law of God was on. I think that just symbolizes that in one swoop of an afternoon or a couple of days, they have broken the commands of God. And then, interesting, he has them burn down the golden calf and grind it up into dust and throws it into the water, and then they, he makes them drink that water. And I don't know, the text doesn't really tell us how to make sense of all of that, uh, but among other things, I, I think what was being underscored to them is that we are to get rid of idolatry quickly, uh, and we are to be to done. Be, we are to be done with it forever. And I think even if you think about after you drink water and drink the dust of the water, it comes back out, and uh, what it comes back out in a defiled state. And I would suggest to you that he is underscoring that any nook and cranny of idolatry is trash, it's defilement. To flirt with idolatry is to defile our souls. Then what I want to close with is I want to pick back up in verse 30 and read down through verse 34. There's another aspect to Moses' intercession here that is important that we spend a little bit of time thinking about. In verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. What's interesting is what he's going to do next. Is, but the category is, let's see if I could figure out a sacrifice that will grant you pardon. So Moses, verse 31, returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has has uh, sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Lord, could you just forgive them? In fact, Lord, could you... Put their crime on me. Blot me out instead of them. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go ahead, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Something that, that Israel will learn about the Lord in the next couple of chapters is on the one hand, he is a pardoning, forgiving God. That's good news. But the other thing he will say in Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, 
While he is a God who pardons our iniquity, he also says, but he will in no way let the guilty go unpunished. How do you... Which one is it? Is God going to forgive you or is God going to hold your sin against you? And I think the tension that we are wrestling with as the scriptures expand and unfold is on the one hand, when God forgives sinners, that is a wonderful display of mercy. And, and yet, when God displays mercy towards sinners, he doesn't do that in a way that sets aside or suspends his justice. God shows mercy by fully satisfying his justice. And Moses gives us a glimpse as to how God is going to do that. God doesn't take Moses up on this because, quite frankly, Moses is not qualified to do this work. But Moses puts the ideal in our head, Lord, if you could just take me out instead and, and, and be, that be put their sin, their stuff on me, and you will pardon them. And I, and I think how the New Testament blows that up and blows that out is that in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, in the context in which the very justice of God was being questioned, that he says there in verse 25, that in his divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins. In other words, all throughout the Old Testament, God never does reconcile justice. He talks big about about condemning sin and condemning sinners and holding people accountable for their sins, but honestly, he never follows through on that in a full and complete way, at least. And it begs the question, is God as just as he claims he is? And when Jesus shows up, he reconciles that and shows, yes, God is just as just as he's always claimed to be. For he says in Romans 3.25 that Jesus was put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That Jesus, here's the word, Jesus becomes a substitute. Jesus becomes the one who, like Moses offered here, says, let their sin be on me. Blot me out. Take me out. Slaughter me. Put your justice and your wrath on me that they might have pardon and forgiveness. See, Moses is giving us a preview. Giving us a preview, first of all, in how Jesus is the one who even this morning is interceding on our behalf, standing in the way, pleading our case. But secondly, how through uh, his death, Jesus dies to take God's wrath in our place. Something that Moses does say in verse 26 of chapter 32, who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. If you're here this morning and you, you realize that your sin cuts you off from a holy God and that your sin warrants you to stand under the bar of God's just judgment, then here this morning, that you can find relief and salvation and forgiveness and acceptance 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Christ. Come to Christ. Trust only in Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that your word teaches us and says to us, ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us now, Father, to marvel, even as we, by the work of your Spirit, you show us a glimpse of our sinfulness. You even show us a sense of the trouble that we're in because of our sinfulness. As we know from a favorite song, it was grace that taught our hearts to fear. But we're so grateful, Father, that in our state of of being sober and fearful of standing before your just judgment, you hold out your son to us. So we also say it was grace that our fears relieved. So, Father, may we turn to Christ this morning. For some, may we turn for the first time to Christ, but for the rest of us, may we turn again to Christ, again and again and again and again. For it is in Jesus we have one who on this day is interceding for us. It is in Jesus who we have on this day one who has laid down his life for us. We thank you for Jesus, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Let's stand and